Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And today, someone with the fanciest jumper on I've ever seen, and one of the longest names I've ever come across. This is DDS. Dobson Smith, jumper wearer extraordinaire. Good evening to you. Hello, Russell. Thanks for having me. And thank you for the compliments about both my name and my jumper. You're very welcome. I am um, a big fan of, of difference and of things which are distinctive. And you're <laughs> pressing all my buttons at the moment. So it's great. So tell us a little bit about yourself, DDS. Where are you, where are you based, first of all? Yeah, well, um, so I've, I've been, you can probably hear from my accent that I am a, I'm a Brit, um, but I live in America, have lived here for 10 years, nearly 10 years, moved out here for two years on a, on a work assignment and two led to three and three led to four and four to a green card. And here we are, my husband and I have been here, yeah, coming up for nine, nine years in April. Um, a green card, that's, living, that's a gold green. dust. It is. It really is. It really is. Um, so we're very privileged. We spent um, the first the first eight and a half years of that time living on the West Coast in San Francisco and the Bay Area. And in January this year, we moved to Connecticut. And so I'm living up in the woods in um, in leafy. Well, I was going to say leafy Connecticut, but it's not very leafy right now because it's just started to snow. Oh, <laughs> Which is just bizarre to me. I'm like, wait a minute, didn't the clocks change? Aren't we supposed to be like, aren't the crocuses or the croci, aren't they supposed to be blooming right now? <laughs> blooming with snow. They have all, all the flowers to pick, a crocus. That's very poetic. <laughs> well, you know, one of the reasons why we moved um, uh, to the East Coast is because I've, I've really missed the transitions of the seasons and in particular, going from winter to spring and then from summer into fall or autumn and um, crocus and daffodils and snowdrops are, are are definitely an anchor for me in terms of life is about to get better or warmer at least. Yes well we've had an unseasonably warm couple of weeks uh, recently in fact it's been 19 degrees in the northeast of England as you can see from my screensaver. Obviously. <laughs> yeah and it's going to snow this week so we <laughs> Where in the northeast are you? Uh, midway between Newcastle and Hexham. Okay. Yep. 
There you go. To the vast majority of people listening, they have no idea what that is. So anyway, <laughs> let's crack on before you and I just have a gossip. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. Wow. I mean, that's, that's you know, I, there's so much to tell um, in my 48 years of being in this meat suit on this planet. Um, I mean, I think, I, I guess, um, in the, to, to, I guess to keep it relatively tight, you know, I'm I'm the CEO and founder of um, a, a, a consultancy called Soul Trained. We're on a mission to um, help leaders get up out of the weeds of their comfort zone and into places they didn't know they needed to go. Um, and I've I founded Soul Trained um, three years ago, and before that, I had a twenty-something year career in HR, um, org dev, learning and development. Um, up to board and C-suite and uh, level in, in, you know, a whole range of industries from, you know, I worked at Marks and Spencer, I've worked at Sony Music Entertainment, um, I've worked in advertising, I've worked in civil engineering. Um, so that's kind of, um, I guess that's the, that's the closed notes version of who I am professionally, who I am personally, um, you know, I'm a human being. Um, I have uh, been married to my husband, Davis, um, for um, 18 years. Um, uh, and we live, as I said before, we live in Connecticut with our two main coon cats, Harper and Hemingway. Um, and um, there's nothing more I enjoy um, more in life uh, than um, watching repeats of the voice X Factor um, and American Idol on YouTube. Well, I mean, he'd gone from here to here. I mean, <laughs> in one sentence, here was I full of respect or an imagination, imagination, admiration. Well, you know, I, I mean, to put, and in, in addition to that, I'm a number one best selling author. I am studying for a PhD in human sexuality. I'm a licensed psychotherapist. I'm a Reiki master. I I'm a crystal ball sound healer. So there are many other dimensions to my, yeah. uh, not don't, don't, don't judge me for my American Idol voice watching habits. <laughs> Very good. We have such a similar background there. So it's quite scary, really. Um, really? All right. And so let's see where we, uh, where, let's see where we start. Well, well, let's start with the name of the organization, Soul Trained. I'm guessing there's some element of soul in mm -hmm. the work that you do. So maybe unpack that a little for me, would you? Yeah, well, um, What's really interesting um, is that the, the, the word psyche um, is a translation from the word soul. It's the Greek word for soul. So when I think about psychology, it's the study of the soul. And when I think about psychotherapy, it's the healing of the soul. Um, and, um, and psychopathology is the wounding of the soul. And, and I think be, because of my background and qualifications in psychology and psychotherapy, um, the idea that um, what the idea of bringing that into the workplace, into the professional setting, um, really appealed to me. And so, soul trained is is really that is that our business is training in inverted commas, so to speak, um, at a soul level because. Um, I, I believe that when we, when we shift things at a soul level, um, then we systemically address um, 
changes in behavior, changes in attitude and changes in approach. So, so, what, so what is the cell? Or what is a cell? Maybe that's a better way of starting. Oh my goodness me, that's a deep question, Russell. Like <laughs> We've done American Idol, let's do, let's do a little bit more superficial. Let's talk about cell. You know, I think I, I, my personal my personal take on that that uh, our soul is our light. You know, our soul is the very essence of who we are as a, as an individual. And I think over you know when we're born um, as a young person into this world, our soul is very present. You know, we we often hear people talk about how you can you, you know you can see the soul of a child in their eyes. It's it's very close to the surface. And then over the years, as we grow up and as we experience life, we learn to be less than and we learn to cover up our soul, either because it's too bright for other people to handle or because we want to protect it from um, from, you know, other people who are mean or or rude or cruel to us. And so I think over time we build up this armor um, and um, and that armor that we that we put on the the psychological armor, if you like, it, you know, we wear it to protect ourselves, but it also stops us from connecting with other people. And I think that's particularly true in the world of work, where so many of us, particularly those of us that have um, identities that come from oppressed, marginalized, or historically excluded groups, we go into the workplace and and we we cover up aspects of who we are even further um, to be able to get along and to and to move up through the um, through the hierarchy and to be promoted and to receive more pay and to you know do all of the things that that capitalism asks us to do kind of thing and so <clears throat> I think this kind of the idea behind soul trained is that we are here to help leaders, individuals, to become more of who they really are um, and to become, um, you know, I say things like, you know, when, when you are your youest you, everything in the world is just works better. You know, when we accept ourselves uh, as we are for who we are um, uh, and we can accept others for who they are as they are, then there is, then there's so much other crap that gets you know moved out of the way so is this what people might call authenticity well you know that's i i don't i don't know some people might call it authenticity i would call it i would call it congruence yeah i'm pleased you said that actually because i'm not a big fan of authenticity i think it's a, neither am i yet another fad <laughs> yeah um, yeah. you know, it's just yet more same old, same old. So, so congruence, yes, I get because actually it is about being in touch with your inner self, isn't it? Um, it's interesting because I was, I always was had so defined for me as sort of energy or the source of energy. So yeah. it's interesting that you 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 think about it as being light. So that's fascinating. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think? Oh, this is a, this is weird. For by all means, shoot me down. But do you think organisations have souls, or are they just collections of? corrupted souls <laughs> well i i mean i i i think all living things have a soul um and so i think the collections of souls that come together equal the organization's soul because an organization is 
other than a, a piece of paper and a bank account and a website, an organization is a, is a group of people, right? And so how that soul comes together and, and you know, as, as an individual, we can experience inner conflict, you know, between there's a whole world of discrepancy theory that the, the, the who we think we are versus the who we want to be versus the who we really are. Um, and I think that inner conflict that we can experience in ourselves can be experienced at a group and organizational level as well. Um, which is why I go back to like this idea of congruency and, or being in rapport, you know, rapport with self, rapport with other selves and rapport with life itself. It's interesting, I remember the old NLP brigade used to bang on about that sort of subject, but they didn't link it back to soul. So I think that's quite interesting, your, your take on that. Yes. So how, how do you think things like um, attachment and those sort of parental and cultural things impact on the ability of souls to be able to collect and create a congruent culture in the workplace? Massively. I mean, in, in, in fact, in, um, when you talk about attachment in, in my, in my book, um, I, I talk about, uh, I use attachment theory as one of the lenses through which to talk about how to create more belonging at work. And, you know, we learn, we know from attachment theory that we learn um, how to create, or we, we learn the template for all of our future relationships through the relationship we have with our primary caregivers from the moment that we're born. And so knowing that um, connection and nurture is actually a biological imperative. Um, and when we don't experience attachment and nurture and care in our adult life, it can have the same impact that it does if we don't experience it in our childhood. Interesting. So I would suggest that, and you, you might disagree with this, but I actually think that a lot of leaders and managers, good leaders and managers, often are sort of pseudo parents in a way, aren't they? And I don't mean the transaction analysis sense of it, but in the that idea of nurturing and caring and anxiety, depression, depressing activities. So that sort of sense of creating a psychologically safe culture. Um, because actually there's a lot of people, I'd say the vast majority of people are parented really quite poorly, aren't they? So the vast majority of people you have in the workplace are not people who are congruent in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I, I, would, I would agree with you that there is a lot of parallels between parenting and, uh, or parenting styles and um, styles in which we are parented and how those play out again in, in the workplace. And I think sometimes as someone who is being managed by someone, we might have a tendency or predilection to uh, unconsciously act out the way in which we were behaved as a child. And likewise, when we are managing someone, we might have a predilection or a tendency to act out um, the way in which we were parented. And, and, um, and yeah, and uh, those power dynamics exist. Um, and I think, you know, I, again, in, in, in my book, I talk about how, a lot of the high high school structures are mimicked by the work structures, you know. So you have at high school, you might have your 
your headmaster or your principal, which has become the CEO, right? Um, uh, uh, headmistress, headmaster, principal, you might have, you know, the administration of the school that has become um, a board of directors. You might have classes and courses that have become departments. And so there are so many parallels that exist between our childhood and our adulthood that if we're not careful and if we're not aware um, of these patterns that we've learned, we may just go and replay them in our adult life, um, which can cause problems. Yeah, I, I would put it stronger than may. I put it stronger as it's almost entirely predictable, isn't it? And, and as a sense, cultures are anxious or avoidant cultures are rather than stable. And it's hard to have a stable culture without congruent people. Yep. And one of the things you talk about is, oh, I understand from um, having just purchased your book, by the way, looks Thank fascinating. It's on special, just for anybody in the UK, it's on special offer on Kindle at the moment. So grab it whilst dogs last, as they say. Um, um, we'll, come, we'll come to that in a second. But you talk there about if you're congruent and you have the capacity to belong, and then belonging is something that you talk about as being uh, an experience which is part of the, uh, the well, I'd say in a, quite a large part of building a, an appropriate culture in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's, this is particularly topical. I mean, it's always topical, but I think that the, the concept of belonging is particularly topical now when we, when we think about the so-called great resignation, which I personally have reframed as the great realization. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, over the, last, over the last couple of years, people have started to ask themselves some really um, big questions about their about their life right and 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 they've been asking themselves well am i doing what what i'm doing does it does it does it you know fire me up does it bring me light does it bring you know and if you've if those people have answered the question no many of them have decided to take career changes some people have said yeah actually what i am doing is is what i want to do but the next question is it is am i doing it where i want to do it and is where I'm doing it bringing, bringing me meaning, purpose, and do I feel like I belong? And so those are the people that I think are voting with their feet and going to find employers where they will have meaning, purpose, and belonging. So I don't think there's less talent. I think there's just more discerning talent. And that, that experience of belonging is what I think people are seeking most, where that they can go somewhere where they can be themselves so that they aren't using up energy to cover or dumb down or suppress aspects of their personality or for themselves in order to fit in. And therefore, when they're not using that psychic energy to create a persona to fit in, that energy is released and, and available for work. So in order to have that experience of belonging, you have to have the behavior of inclusion in an organization. And that, when I talk behavior, I don't just mean how people interact with each other. I mean the behavior of the org. So policies, decision-making processes, frameworks. And in order to have inclusion, the behavior of inclusion, you have to have diversity. Yeah. And for me, diversity is a fact, right? It's binary. An organization either is diverse or it isn't. And a really quick way to discover that is, from an individual perspective, when I look around, do I see people who are like me? 
And do I see people who are not like me? And if the answer to both of those questions is yes, the likelihood is that you've got diversity. So to get belonging, you have to have inclusion. To get inclusion, you have to have diversity. But diversity might not always lead to inclusion and inclusion might not always lead to belonging. So it's a reverse, it's a reverse equation that doesn't always work in, the, in going forwards. Now you talk about um, what you should be measuring to determine whether you have a culture of belonging in the workplace. I've yep. always measured conflict as a measure of true diversity, not punching each other in the face because that's fighting. But um, healthy adult conflict actually is the true sign of diversity in action because actually what you want with diversity is difference and therefore you get difference of opinion, differences, differences in exchange, differences in perspective and such like, such, you know, so you get conflict. So I mean, it's something I've used a number of times in cultural sort of assessments, but are you, are you looking at that? Is something different or what's your approach? <clears throat> I mean, my, my personal approach on this is that the two most important people metrics that an organization can look at is um, employee attrition and employee engagement. Okay. And, and, I, and I tend to see a correlation between the two. When one of them goes up, one of them goes down. Um, and so what, what you want is your employee attrition to go down um, and not to zero, right? Because some healthy turnover is good, but always encouraging organizations to look at what is the industry average for their, for their, for their company and do better than that. And you want your employee engagement to increasingly go up. Um, and, you know, engagement to me is different to happiness. It's not about making people happy. Agreed. Um, it is about, is it, it is, it is about the, the things that create people or help people to feel engaged with, aligned with, um, and, um, uh, you know, I guess motivated to show up. Yeah, we'll have a conversation about engagement at another time. Okay. <laughs> but it's fascinating. So you must tell us a bit about the book because you've mentioned it in passing at least 74 four times now. So <laughs> give us more information quick. <laughs> well, um, the, the book started life um, as an academic paper for um, a master's that I was doing um, and um, it was, you know, an academic paper doesn't always make scintillating bedtime reading. In fact, actually, that makes I often great bedtime reading. Academic, <laughs> re academic <laughs> papers are great bedtime reading, but you never quite make it through to the yeah. first, end of the first page. So um, it was a real passion project of mine, um, which helped me to do the work and to do the research and to do all of the things that were needed for the paper. You know, as as a as a, as a queer person, well, as a white queer person who was born into a male body, I'm aware of the ways in which I, my identity carries both privilege and the ways in which my identity has been excluded and marginalized and oppressed over the years. And, you know, I, I was in, I was in, I was in one position um, at, at sea level and I was told by another sea level person do you think you could tone it down in this meeting I and I I didn't really I really didn't know what they meant I was like tone what down like do you want me to 
change my shirt like like what do you what do you and they said to me could you could you be less gay and it wasn't until that moment when I was seen when I felt I was senior enough to challenge that behavior and I turned around to them I said well could you be a little bit less straight please and they said to me well I don't know I don't know what I don't know I don't know how to do that and I'm like right that's the point and and at that moment I I, it all came flooding back to me the times and times out over and over and over again in my life, not just in my professional career, that I had been the subject of heteronormativity and homophobia. And, and I thought, well, if it's taken me 20 something years to be able to say something, I, I, I wonder what it's been like for other people. And, mm -hmm. and so it was really, it was really my personal experience coupled with my academic work um, and also um, the work that I'd been doing with um, a, a community mental health uh, organization in um, Berkeley in the East Bay in California um, the Pacific Center for Human Growth, which is the country's third oldest LGBTQ plus community mental health center, where I was the board president for a couple of years. And I really, and, and also a clinician there, really learning to value the question, what happened to you versus what's wrong with you? And all of this kind of like coming together um, and, and really we're just really wanting to um, wanting to let other people know that their experience that is often gaslighted or um, derided or I don't know or put down that is that it's real um, and that everyone, no matter what body you are born into, no matter what you believe no matter your political persuasion, no matter your gender, no matter your sex, no matter your sexuality, no matter your ability, everyone deserves to belong. Powerful message and, and, and true. I, you know, you can't, you can't, I'm not, I can't argue with that. So sorry for not trying. Um, so this book you can get hold of on Amazon. Started as an academic paper, has ended up into a, um, a barnstorming political hitman, hit person. Oh, no, no, that's the wrong thing I'm looking at. That was Jack Reacher. Uh, no, that's definitely not my book. <laughs> <laughs> but the point of it is you can be yourself here. And I think uh, that's, that's a great title. And it sort of, say, it sort of sums it up. And I'm guessing it's, it's for everyone. That's, but it seems it to is. be uh, angled mostly for people either in business or running businesses. Who were you thinking of yeah. when, you, when you wrote this? Yeah, so when I wrote it, I was really thinking of CEOs, founders, chief talent officers, chief people officers, yeah. entrepreneurs. Um, but what's been lovely is I've had people reach out to me who, who don't occupy those positions to tell me that they've read the book and how scene they felt when they read the book and um, how much they learned and how reflective and the, they, they felt reading the book. And I really wrote it, um, I really wrote it, I, the, it's, it's short, right? Like it's, it's not a thick book. Um, it was designed to be able to be 
I guess, read in a flight from the East Coast to the West Coast of America or from London to JFK, you know, it, it's, you can sit and you can read it and you can digest it and you'll find something in there for you. Um, and, you know, I, it's a bit funny. Well, I hope it's a bit, funny. it's meant to be a bit funny in places and just honest and real. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, I, I, while I recognize that it's nigh on impossible to have a conversation about diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging without it becoming political. It's not a political book. It's not about yeah. Tory versus Labour. It's not about blue versus red. Um, it's, it, is, it is about our biological imperative to belong. Yeah, and I mean, political can have a small p. It doesn't always have to be linked to right. Thank sort you. Of organizational yeah. politics, is it? Yeah, uh, absolutely fantastic. I'm looking forward to reading it, and I have a flight on um, Friday, so I shall be not quite as long as that one, but I shall be giving it a, giving it a go. And and thank you so much for spending time with me tonight. And forget all the audience, but I've had a fantastic time. So I've learned so much. It's been great, and. Hopefully we'll we'll meet up again because uh, it was absolutely that, fascinating. I'm I'm hoping there's another book in the stocks because I mean this one's been written for a while. I'm, there is. I'm, there's another book coming out in September, and that title is um, the title is Leadership is a Behavior, not a Title: Your Pocket Guide be, to Becoming a Person Worth Following. Excellent. Nice bit of positioning there, and maybe we'll meet again then when we talk about that book. Fabulous. It's been a pleasure to have you this evening, and um, you take care. Likewise. Thanks, Russell. Hi everybody, I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.